I invite you to take your Bible or a Bible from under the pew in front of you and turn to Hebrews chapter 12. The more I thought about today's text in relation to next week's text, the more I was persuaded that the wise thing to do was to combine the two. So I'm going to do that. So instead of reading only verses 18 to 24, I'm going to read all the way through the end of the chapter, verse 29. And instead of taking a long time to look at each individual tree in the forest, we will focus today on trying to see the forest whole and its structure rather than going into great detail on each of the phrases. Starting at verse 18 of Hebrews 12. For you have not come to a mountain that may be touched and to a blazing fire and to darkness and gloom and a whirlwind and to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word should be spoken to them. For you could not bear, for they could not bear the command, even if a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less shall we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then. Now he has promised saying, yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heaven. And this expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things in order that those things which cannot be shaken may, be, may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude or let us be grateful, by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Father, you are very great. This is a, a passage that takes the breath away when one begins to grasp its reality. The contrasts in it are profound. The height and the depth of it is great. And the time I have to work on it is very small. And I pray that you, therefore, will winnow this sermon so that the chaff is driven away and the nourishing grain will remain and fall on good soil. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we looked at verses 12 to 17 that comes just before what I read here, and we noted that it's a series of exhortations or commandments 
like be strong in verse 12 and run a straight race in verse 13 and pursue peace and holiness in verse 14 and don't be like Esau who sold his birthright for a bowl of cereal in verses 16 and 17. And we saw that the relationship between those exhortations and the preceding verses of 4 through 11 was that the preceding verses were all about God and his loving discipline in our lives and were the basis of those exhortations. And we saw that in the word therefore at the beginning of verse 12. And we stressed that those exhortations are not ways of getting God to act a certain way, but they are descriptions of the way you act when you trust that God is already acting a certain way on your behalf. And we repeated that sentence last week, and I'll repeat it again this week, that the exhortations for you to do things, to be a doer, a fighter, are not meant to get God to do something, but rather they are the ways you act when you trust that God is already doing something for you to help you be the way the commandments tell you to be. It's so important that you not get that turned around. Right knowing is the basis of right doing. That's a way to say it from last week. Verses 4 to 11 are the right knowing about how God in his sovereignty works through our pain and adversity to bless us and make us holy and peaceful. And then right doing flows from it as commandments and exhortations are rooted in the right knowing about God's prior action on our behalf. So crucial that we get that. Now, verse 18 is another section of right knowing, you could say. It's another foundation. It begins with the word for, unless you have the NIV, which habitually drops these important words for smoothness sake. For you have come, not come, to a mountain that may be touched. And then he launches in for seven verses, 18 through 24, to a, a foundation for why we shouldn't be like Esau. The last commandment there in verses 16 and 17 was, don't be like Esau. Don't sell your life for short-term pleasures in this world. For, and then he contrasts, the experience of Mount Sinai and meeting God in an unmediated way in his holiness and the experience of the cross meeting the holiness of God mediated by a loving Savior with blood on his hands for us. Now, we'll come back to that content in just a moment, but let's move on and get the whole picture here so that we don't get bogged down in the details. So at the end of this section, at the end of 18 to 24 which is more right-knowing, comes verse 25, another exhortation for right-doing. It says, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking, which is what Esau did. So he's just repeating in another way the command of verse 16. Don't be like Esau. That is, don't refuse him who is speaking to you. Don't turn away to the short-term pleasures of the world. Take what God has to offer and love it. And then in verses 25 to 28 comes another section on foundation or right knowing and begins with four again. 
Verse 25 in the middle there. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned on earth, much less so we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And then verse 27 gives a promise about the unshakable kingdom. And then you get to verse 28, which is another right doing statement. Namely, be thankful and reverence and worship God with awe in your heart. And then comes the final support, verse 29, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, let me try to paint this in the air here for you, because that's that's the whole, and I went over it so fast that I'm sure it's not at all clear. So I want to paint it again with broad strokes. And what I want you to see on the canvas here, if I was a, one of these chalk artists, I would do it with chalk. But there is a, a landscape in this chapter with four peaks and four valleys. Each of the four peaks represents an exhortation or something to do. And each of the valleys represents motivation, something to know, something to believe, something that the peaks rest upon and are built on. So let me walk through it, just pointing out the four peaks of exhortation. Then we'll go back very briefly and look at the foundations that are laid for those peaks. And keep in mind that this whole book is structured this way. There are long doctrinal sections about the meaning of the cross or the meaning of Christ's priesthood or about the superiority of the new covenant or about the superiority of Christ over angels. Long doctrinal sections with not a commandment in them. And then comes, boom, an exhortation or a commandment that we're to do something with that. And you rise up on the hill. And I call it a hill and I make it a peak because Jesus said, Matthew 5, 16, a city set on a what? Hill cannot be hidden. Neither do men light a lamp and put it under a bushel, but on a lampstand that it may give light to all in the house. Let your light so shine. Where? In the valley? No, on the hill. So that men can see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. This book is all about that. So is the whole Bible, incidentally. This book is structured this way. This chapter is structured this way. If you get it in your head, the Christian life is structured this way. Doctrinal meditation and reflection that reveals the nature of God and His ways to you. Then you rise up out of that indeed. If it's happening by the Holy Spirit, you are catapulted up out of that into a peak of exhortation where you do something that makes the glory of God known in the world. And that's what the Christian life is all about. That's why creation exists. Let's look at the four peaks. I'll just mention them. Peak number one, verse one, going back to see the whole chapter whole. Throw off everything that hinders and run with perseverance the race marked out for you. That's the first exhortation. Peak number two exhortation, verses 12 to 17. Be strong, make a straight path, pursue peace, pursue holiness. Don't be like Esau. Peak number three, verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. And finally, peak number Four in verse 28, be thankful for God's promise of an unshakable kingdom. And in that gratitude of hope, worship God with reverence and awe. 
Everything in this chapter is designed to change your life. To transform your life. The peaks are the ultimate points here. Everything else is doctrinal foundation about God and his ways that are meant to motivate those four peaks of exhortation. So let's go back and do the valleys quickly. We'll only look at three of them. We already spent a week on the one in verses 4 through 11. So let's just take the the valley of motivation that begins in verse 18 and goes through verse 24. It's the great contrast I mentioned between Sinai and the cross. Let's read it. Um, verse 18, 4, or because, don't be like Esau, don't throw away your life for a bowl of cereal, because there's a contrast between Sinai and Calvary. You have not come to a mountain that may be touched and to a blazing fire and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind and to a blast of trumpet, a sound of words, which was such that when they heard it, they didn't want to hear anymore. Verse 20, for they could not bear the command, even if a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. Verse 21, and so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I'm fearful, I'm trembling. You have not come to that, he says. Unmediated holiness is terrifying. Unmediated holiness is consuming. What have you come to, Christians? In believing in Jesus Christ, what have you come to? Verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion. And he does not mean a a geographical location in the earth. Christianity is unique among the major world religions in that it has no geographic center. There are no pilgrimages in the Christian life. Period. Don't go to Jerusalem as a pilgrimage. That's blasphemy. There are no geographic centers to Christianity. You know where our geographic center is? Heaven. We are aliens and exiles and strangers. And you can be just as at home in Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, or Somalia, or China, as you can in any other geographic location, and just as alienated. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, to a general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to spirits of righteous men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkling blood or the sprinkled blood which speaks This is a very articulate blood. This is a speaking blood here, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Let me just draw one explicit contrast for you and stress it for your hope. In verse 19, the voice that they heard, it says, was such that they cried out, no more, no more. It was a kind of voice that evidently was not as winsome as some voices are. It frightened the Jews. They said, Moses, no, 
No, we don't want it directly. You go up there, somehow be a mediator for us, but we don't want to hear that. And then, contrast with that, the voice of verse 24. You have come to Jesus, who is a mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks. Now ask yourself, what does it say? What does the blood of Jesus say to you? What do you hear in the blood of Jesus? Maybe you've never even thought that it's talking. Well, start now. It's talking. What is it saying to you? If you saw Jesus hanging on the cross here, gasping and heaving and dripping everywhere, his head is dripping, his side is dripping, his back is dripping, his hands are dripping, his feet are dripping, this blood, what is it saying? It's saying, I love you. I love you. I forgive you. I purchase you. I cleanse you. I protect you. I will keep you. I will always be there for you. Verses 18 to 24, this contrast between Sinai and Calvary is meant to cause you to fall in love with the blood of Jesus and the mediator of a new covenant, Jesus. And then comes the peak, verse 25, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Don't be like Esau. Esau looked at his inheritance and he said, no, thank you. And turn to cornflakes. The whole world is cornflakes compared to the promises of God. I remember yesterday, Noel and I, Barnabas wasn't there, he was spending the night somewhere, so Talitha was in bed, and lo and behold, I had a wife all to myself. And we prayed together, and it was a beautiful day yesterday, you know. And I love beauty, and I love breezes and sunshine and green trees and blue skies and birds singing and flowers blooming. And it's so dangerous. It's so dangerous. I said to her, I said, I could worship this. I could worship this. I love this so much. Pray for me. Are you scared of the good gifts of God like I am? They aren't meant to be worshipped. They're meant to be a dim reflection of God who is to be worshipped. and He's beautiful. And if you love his nature, oh, how you should love him. Because he's going to remove it all someday. And all that will be left is God. And then when we've learned to worship God perfectly, he recreated all. I believe that. He's going to recreate it all. The new heavens and a new earth. Well, that's the first valley. The other two are, are much shorter. Verses 25 and 27 is a valley of motivation, again, to prompt us to respond to these peaks. And it has two parts. It has a threat and it has a promise. The threat is verse 25 where it says, For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less shall we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. 
Let me ask you, what, what role does threat have in your Christian life? Threat and fear. Fear by itself does not melt the heart into love, does it? doesn't melt the heart into love. But it is so important to realize that it's a fearful thing not to have the heart melted into love by the Savior who does. So the role of fear and threat in the Bible is to bolt people awake who have their face buried in their oatmeal. Stock market, television, computer, beautiful Saturdays. And don't see God, don't love God, don't do anything to magnify God. They just eat cornflakes, oatmeal. Fear is meant to just wake them up so that they will be terrified about what happens to people like that. And then will not say, oh, i got to do things to get God to like me. That's not what you do. I tried to make that plain at the table. And the structure of this chapter is built in such a way as to say no to that. But rather, you wake up and say, what then must I do? And the answer is, listen to the blood. Look at the mediator and be melted into love and trust. That's your only hope. It's my only hope. And then comes the promise, last promise in the chapter about an unshakable kingdom in verse 26 and 27. His voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised saying, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven, quoting Haggai 2.6, And this expression, yet once more, denotes that evidently if it's only going to happen once more, then shakableness is going to be done. That's, That's the gist here. Denotes the removing of things to be shaken as created things in order that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. And then the great, therefore, back to the peak. Therefore, be thankful for this unshakable kingdom. So my last motivation to you this morning in closing. Well, next to last. Is if this week you felt shaken. Some of I see a lot of students out here. When I went to college for the first time, and every time I went back to school at the end of the summer, I felt so nervous. I was a nervous kid. I had butterflies in my stomach, and everything felt shakable, like it doesn't hold. And I don't have anything really firm and familiar under my feet. And now I am old, and I still have those experiences. I go through life and my health is fragile and finances are fragile and violence is fragile and life is just shakable. And sometimes your heart is wavering and your mind is 
not holding together and it's going all directions like this and you can't seem to get your feet on the ground or your hands on anything firm and life is just shaking. Well, that's normal. And that's why this valley of motivation and foundation is here saying God is one day going to take away everything in your life that shakes and replace it with something that cannot shake. Believe that. Trust that. And then verse 28 says, be thankful for that. Oh, be thankful for that, that you have a kingdom that cannot be shaken and reverence the Lord. Serve the Lord. Worship the Lord with reverence and awe because, last motivation, verse 29, our God is a consuming fire. So I close by asking you this question. Is that is that leaving you all now with fear motivation? Our God is a consuming fire. See you later. Fear this God. Is that the way you should walk out of here this morning? It depends. It depends. Consuming fire. Ask yourself, consuming what and whom? you got two choices. Over here, if you love the unshakable kingdom, if your heart is in the kingdom, if you are laying up treasures for yourself in the kingdom, this word, our God is a consuming fire, means... He's going to consume your adversaries and chaff and refine your gold. And that's not bad news. But if you've got your face in the cornflakes and you could care less about the kingdom of God and all you want is the short-term pleasures of Egypt, it'll consume you. And you should be terrified. So my closing plea is bring your face up out of the cereal bowl of the world and look at the spectacular promises that there is a Zion, a heavenly Jerusalem, a city of God, a judge, a mediator, a blood a welcoming, a word that says to you right now, I love you, I forgive you, I receive you, I'll keep you, I'll take care of you, I'll never leave you or forsake you, I'll provide you with an unshakable kingdom. Trust me, believe me.